Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Peter Zoitlin, author of the new novel, Spin. Peter, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Spin, how would you describe the novel? Well, Spin is a work of historical fiction. It's my it's my ninth book with my first novel. Um, I, I'd never written fiction before. And it is the story of an ancestor of mine who cycled around the world in the 1890s, a woman from Boston with three small children and a husband that she left behind. And it's a reimagination of her story. Uh, I had written a nonfiction book. My very first book was a nonfiction book based on her story. But this takes you sort of uh, much deeper into, uh, into her persona and into her mind, uh, hopefully. Um, it's written in the form of a long letter to her only grandchild, a, a distant, another distant relative of mine that I found during the course of my research of her story. Um, but it's a story of a woman who stepped way, way outside uh, the lines, um, so to speak, you know, the, the social conventions of her time to take a remarkable around-the-world uh, journey. And so was this a family story that you heard? Uh, I mean, obviously you, you, as you just explained, you, you novelized her experience, but yeah. as you also explained, you wrote a nonfiction book about her experience was in terms of the nonfiction and the, the actual, uh, um, person, was this something that you had heard in your family or how did you discover it? Not at all. This was not a family story that was passed down through the generations. We, my mother and I first learned about uh, this ancestor uh, in a letter from a complete stranger back in 1993, uh, who was a amateur cycling historian who had stumbled onto this story. And there was nothing on the internet about it. It was completely lost to history. And in his letter, uh, he said he was researching the story of the first woman to bike around the world, and he had done some genealogy research of his own, and it led him to believe that my mother might be a relative of this woman, Annie. Uh, my mother knew nothing about uh, this woman, who was her grandfather's sister. She knew nothing about the bicycle trip, and um, it was, wasn't until 10 years later 2003, when I received a letter from the same fellow, you know, we told him we couldn't help him, but 10 years later, he wondered if we had learned anything in the interim. And I had, you know, over the years asked other distant relatives that we would see at family events, if anyone had heard of her, and always came up with a complete blank. So in 2003, when he wrote to me again, I thought, you know, this story is so incredible. This woman in the 1890s rides a bicycle around the world, leaving a husband and three small children behind. Well, why does nobody in my family know this story? And that's when I decided to pursue it on my own, you know, not knowing how far I would get, given there was a complete paucity of information out there about her. And what did you do to, to research the, the uh, history of, of her trip around the world? Well, you know, that initial letter that we received in 1993, the, the writer enclosed two newspaper articles. Um, 
contemporaneous uh, you know, articles about her trip, one from a newspaper in Boston and another from Omaha almost a year later. And the trip began in Boston. My great-grand Aunt Annie lived in the old west end of Boston. And um, there was a clue in one of those letters that, um, that he had, one of the uh, articles that he had enclosed, which said that the, the trip actually began at the steps of the Massachusetts State Capitol. So my first call was to the State House Library of Massachusetts, thinking, well, maybe they've got some record of this event, a photograph, something. And when I called the librarian who answered the phone, a woman named Ava Murphy, what struck me was that she didn't even hesitate for two seconds before telling me she knew that they didn't have anything about her. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> and she said, she explained that a few weeks earlier, she'd had an inquiry by email about my great granddaughter from someone in Texas. And I thought, well, this is really strange. I and mean, this is not the, and this is not the guy who wrote us the letter, the original letter. This was somebody else. And I thought, well, that's really strange. I wonder if I have a long lost relative in Texas who's pursuing this story. <laughs> and uh, long story short, she, she connected the two of us. Uh, a guy named Dennis McCown, uh, who was a professor down in Austin area. And it turns out we are not related at all. But he stumbled onto Annie's story in a most remarkable way himself. If we have time, I could tell you that story. But sure. Um, uh, it's what got me going. So I know this will seem quite tangential, but I promise you it, it, it'll be worth it. Um, Dennis explained to me that he stumbled onto Annie's story while researching a story of an ancestor of his own, a woman from El Paso named Helen Beulah Morose. Helen had been married to a ne'er-do-well named Martin, a cattle rustler, and Martin had been arrested in El Paso on a cattle rustling charge in 1895. And she and uh, Helen and Martin escaped across the Rio Grande into Juarez, Mexico. But she decided to come back into El Paso to hire a lawyer to represent him. And she hired a man by the name of John Wesley Harden. And people may know that name because John sure. Wesley Harden was the most notorious gunslinger of the Old West had killed by his own count, by some counts, two dozen men, maybe as many as four dozen men by the time he was in his early 20s. And now, having served half his life in prison and been released, he was now, believe it or not, practicing law in El Paso. And uh, Helen hired him, and they quickly became embroiled in a very intense affair. And one night in July of 1895, Four law enforcement officers paid by Harden lured Martin across the river back into El Paso where they murdered him. And Dennis was researching this story. And what he stumbled across uh, in the newspaper accounts, he was wondering, well, where was John Wesley Harden on the night of the murder? Because he paid for it, but he didn't commit it. And it turned out he was sitting with Helen in a theater, listening to a lecture by a young woman from Boston going around the world on a bicycle. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. My, my great, my Jewish great granddaunt from Boston crossed paths with John Wesley Harden in El Paso, Texas in 1895. 
And I said, I have got to get to the bottom of this story. It's just so incredible. And, and try and figure out why no one in my family ever heard of it. Um, so that's what got me started in earnest. And it was a, took me, uh, four years of pretty steady work to painstakingly start to piece her story together, mainly relying on old newspaper accounts because it turns out she was a, very gifted self-promoter with a very modern sense of celebrity and left, as it turns out, a trail of newspaper coverage all over the world about her trip. Um, and it was while I, and, and keep in mind, back in the early 2000s, very few newspapers were digitized and searchable. So it was a very painstaking process, of, you know, microfilm, you know, staring at microfilm Real sure. hour after hour after hour. And I simultaneously hired a genealogist to help me determine if Annie had any direct living descendants, distant relatives of mine, who might be able to shed light on the mystery. Um, and I got a little bit of encouragement when I came across an article in the New York World newspaper, one of the only articles out of more than a thousand I've collected, that mentioned that Annie had three young children that she'd left behind, something she preferred not to discuss. But as, a, as appalling as that seemed at first, it also gave me hope because I realized that if those children had children, they could well be alive. Uh, this is, you know, back in the early 2000s. And that led me to Annie's only direct living descendant, a granddaughter named Mary, who was my second cousin once removed, and I ended up connecting with Mary, and she she knew her grandmother. Uh, she was 16 when her grandmother died in the 1940s, and so she, I had her memories. And as it turns out, buried in Mary's basement, some scrapbooks and souvenirs and artifacts of this bicycle trip that had been gathering dust for, you know, 100 years. Wow. So you wrote this nonfiction book, as you just explained, and in the interim, you said that was your first nonfiction book, yeah. and in the interim, you've written other nonfiction books. That's what, right. what prompted you to come back to this topic, to novelize it for your new, your debut novel, Spin? This is a great, I love telling this story. In November of 2019, the New York Times ran an obituary, a belated obituary about Annie. They were, they were doing, if you if you read the Times, you may know that they've been doing a series for a couple of years called Overlooked No More. Sure. Obituaries of primarily women and people of color who, looking back, would have merited an, an obit in the Times, but which, you know, with do, the obit pages have been dominated by white men. And so an obit, a full-page obit, oh, half a page, rather, obit appeared in the Times that I didn't know was coming, and it relied a lot on my first book. And my wife, Judy, who is very involved in the book club world nationally, she's got a newsletter with over 10,000 avid book club members, and she knows what they like to read. And she said to me when the obit came out, said, you have got to write this as historical fictions, because if you don't, somebody's going to, and you've already done the research. You know, some people will work on historical fiction for, for a decade, you know, doing the research. She said, you've already done the research. 
So I've never written fiction in my life. And I figured I had to humor her and I would write 20 or 25 pages. It would be disastrous. I'd show it to my agents who would tell me it was disastrous. And that would be the end of it. Um, but she liked the first 25 pages and encouraged me to keep going. And the result was this novel spin, which I should mention as a subtitle of a novel based on a parenthetical, mostly true story. And that's relevant here because Annie herself was writing historical fiction in real time as she traveled. And what I mean by that is that she was all about making a sensation of herself. <laughs> she knew what appealed to the, sen the sensationalist instincts of the newspapers of the day. And so she spun a lot of tall tales about herself and about where she had been and about, you know, things that had happened in her travels as she, as she went around the world. And the first book, you know, was, was really a, a task of teasing out fact from fiction. You know, what, what really happened and what did Annie make up? And that didn't, I didn't know that starting out. I was well into my research when it started to dawn on me that there was more than met the eye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply in Annie's story. And although I was at first disappointed because I thought I'm not going to be able to establish her claim to be the first woman around the world on a bicycle, but I, I slowly realized that I actually had a more interesting character on my hands, not just a woman with, you know, mental fortitude and physical endurance. Um, so it was really that obit in the New York times in the fall of 2019 that spurred the, um, the novel spin. And so what was the experience like for you writing your first novel? You know, it was, you know, I, I, it took me a little while to get over thinking I can't do this because I've never done it before. Um, once I sat down to do it, I actually found it to be a lot of fun. You know, since most of my other writing has been journalistic and very much sort of, you know, you know, a lot of, fealty to the facts of, of any given story. Um, it was kind of liberating to be able to take liberties with Annie's story, but in a way that I thought, you know, still was authentic um, in the sense that I think the book is very true to her character and the arc of the story is true. Um, and what book groups seem to have enjoy about spin is trying to tease out, okay, what's true in this book? What did the author make up? What did the protagonist make up? <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it was just fun to create dialogue, to create encounters, to sort of fill in 
to imagine, you know, a world in which I could, I could fill in the blanks in her story. Because the historic, the, the real historical record is somewhat sparse in certain ways. I mean, there's a rich trove of uh, newspaper articles, <clears throat> excuse me, but very little else. Um, I would have, I was thrilled to meet my cousin Mary, but disappointed that uh, no, she didn't have a diary of this trip. But <laughs> Annie did leave one first person account of this trip behind uh, a, a, a big feature that she wrote for the front page of the special Sunday section of the New York world, which was one of the most prominent newspapers of the day. Um, but that, but even that story, it was quite clear to me when I found it, you know, was riddled with her, her tall tales and her, you know, exaggerations. Um, so it wasn't exactly a historical record, but it was, it was really quite liberating, I think, in a way to write fiction and, you know, create this world. And it, it, it brought her to life in a way that I don't think the nonfiction account could do. And, you know, I decided to write it in the form of a long letter written to Mary late in Annie's life. You know, she's writing to her granddaughter, uh, telling her things about her life, about her relationships. Um, and I didn't give a lot of thought to why I did it that way. It just seemed, it was sort of more of a gut instinct. But in retrospect, it dawned on me that the reason I wrote it that way is that since I first very quote unquote virtually met Annie in 1993. She's she kind of lived in my head now for decades, and I just always wished I could sit down with her over a cup of coffee and have her tell me <laughs> her story just for an hour or two hours. And I think this was my way of letting her tell me her story, although in the book she's telling it to her granddaughter Mary. Sure. So what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing the nonfiction books that you've written? Did you study journalism? No, I, I, no, no background in journalism, really. Um, I, after graduating from Amherst College near you, um, I went to law school, like a lot of writers, uh, you know, practiced law, taught law for a few years. It wasn't really for me. And then I went to work in 1985 for a nonprofit called the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. It was my good fortune to talk about timing as everything. I started working there in the late spring of 1985. And in October of that year, the organization was selected as the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for that year. And I was hired to be the director of public affairs, which was, you know, kind of communications and right. press relations, really with no experience. But boy, you know, quickly accelerated because the profile of the organization, you know, went international, all this attention from the Nobel Prize. And while I was in that job, I started writing a lot of op-ed opinion pieces um, that started to get picked up by a lot of the big national newspapers. And even some had some published abroad in like, you know, in Soviet Union and Pakistan and India. And I actually got quite a kick out of it. I'd never had a byline before. I, you know, I mean, I don't want to say it was an ego trip, but it was, it was a little bit of an ego boost. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, gee, maybe I have a little bit of a knack for this. You know, um, these pieces are getting picked up with some regularity. 
So that's really kind of when I started writing professionally, so to speak. And then it evolved. Um, you know, I, I kind of always had an ambition to write a book, but I didn't know about what. And then this story kind of in 1993 fell into my lap um, in the form of this letter I mentioned. And um, that's where it started. So I'm curious, do you have plans to write any other novels or are you working on another nonfiction book now? Right now, I don't, but I had one idea that I've had, and this is sort of also related to my great grand aunt Annie, when she published that first person account in the New York world that I mentioned, it wasn't byline Annie Londonderry, which was her assumed name, by the way. It was her real name was Annie Cohen Kopchowski, Kopchowski being her married name. The byline was Nellie Bly Jr. Nellie Bly was the most <laughs> famous journalist of her day. She had made an around-the-world trip as a publicity stunt for the Pulitzer Papers uh, several years before Annie made her bike trip, but I think it was direct inspiration for Annie. And Nellie Bly's, you know, what she was endeavoring to do was to beat the fictional record established by Jules Verne's character, Phileas Fogg, in Around the World in 80 Days. and. um it went after the bike trip, Annie briefly became Nellie Bly's replacement, so to speak, at the New York World. Nellie Bly had a falling out with her editors, and they, they were always looking for what they called women stunt journalists. These were women who were doing sort of investigative pieces, often very quite sensational. And so Annie, in addition to her account of the bike trip, started writing a series of sensational features for the New York World. And I thought that that chapter in her life, which was brief but colorful, might make the subject a good subject for another novel. Uh, we'll see. I don't, I'm not committed <laughs> to it. Not completely sure. committed to it yet, but I'm tossing the idea around. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Recently? Oh, my. Um, well, that's hard. I, I can tell you. My three favorite novels of all time. Um, I, I would put number one is William Styron's The Confessions of Nat Turner. Um, and two of them are John Steinbeck books, uh, East of Eden and The Grapes of Wrath. In fact, it was Steinbeck, one of Steinbeck's books, Travels with Charlie, that inspired the book I wrote before Spin, which was called The Dog Went Over the Mountain, in which I took our aging rescue dog, Albie, who left us last New Year's Eve on a cross-country car trip, uh, more or less along the route that Steinbeck had followed, um, you know, some 60 years before, or 50 years before, or almost 60 years. Um, so those would be my, my top three. Um, I've also written a lot about uh, animal rescue, particularly dogs. Um, so I've tended to read a lot of books, uh, you know, on that subject, um, sure. there's one that's fairly obscure, but which I thought was, was sent to me by the author. It's called Catching Dawn. And, um, she was, she sent it to me looking for, you know, a blurb for the cover. I didn't know her. It was a small publisher I'd never heard of. And I, I get asked this a lot and I'm always wary because I, I obviously don't want to commit to something if I haven't read the book and it absolutely blew me away. It's called Catching Dawn. It was a beautiful mem memoir about rescuing dogs, but, but about finding family and finding a way home. It was really quite beautiful. That's great. 
Well, I'm curious, uh, were you able to confirm if Annie genuinely uh, circled the globe on a bike? Well, here's the thing. You know, she ostensibly made this trip to settle a wager. That was the story that was reported all over the world, and that wager had certain conditions. Now, whether the wager actually existed or she concocted it is something we could debate. Um, but one of the conditions was that she ride 10,000 miles by bicycle on this round-the-world trip. Now, ironically, when she wrote her first-person account for the New York world, she claimed to have logged exactly 9,604, which is an awfully precise number, and less than the amount to which she was publicly committed. Um, she absolutely made a trip around the world. In my estimation, she rode, you know, probably anywhere between five and 7,000 miles on a bicycle, mm -hmm. but she covered a lot of ground and water, um, you know, by ship. I mean, obviously no one can literally sure. ride yeah. around the world on a bicycle, but she took considerable liberties with her means of travel, um, in certain, particularly in certain parts of the world. I would say that I think she has a real purchase on the claim to have been the first woman to ride across the American continent, although uh, not in one contiguous stretch because she first traveled from New York to Chicago, reversed course, went around the world traveling eastward, arrived in San Francisco, and then rode back to Chicago. There were some stints by train in there, but she, most of her riding was in the United States and in France. So, you know, we'll, we'll never know. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, well, we'll, we'll probably never know exactly what happened <laughs> well where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your new novel spin yeah so there i there are two websites i have one that i created well before i wrote spin that's devoted to annie londonderry and that's www.annielondonderry.com um i should mention briefly if i can jeff that the name londonderry sure was adopted by annie because the londonderry Lithia Spring Water Company of Nashua, Hampshire, was her first corporate sponsor. She actually had corporate sponsors. She pioneered sports-related marketing for women, among <laughs> other things, um, and carried advertising banners wherever she went. It's part of the way she earned her way around the world. Um, so there's a lot of information about that on AnnieLondonDairy.com and a lot about how this trip figured into the women's movement, the suffrage movement. Um, now, there's a whole social historical context for this trip that's important. And then I have an author website, which is www.peterzoitlin.com. My last name is spelled Z-H-E-U-T-L-I-N. So you can find out about my other books there and a lot more about Annie Londonderry on the other site. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Peter Zoitland, author of the novel Spin, the novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Peter, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.